You'll never know Other people, places, things that you'll see Episode 7 of People, Places, and Things, a podcast all about the wonderful people, the fabulous places, and the fun things to do right here in Kansas City and beyond. Today, we're talking with the incomparable Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. The museum chronicles a time in history with a painful backdrop, but an inspiring hope off in the distance. He's just so smart, so gracious, and he's one of the best storytellers. Every time I see your son out, and he's sick of me, I know it. I say, I love your daddy. He looks at me and says, Shay, I know. You tell me this every time I see you. There's just nothing about you that I don't love. You are an impeccable dresser. Well, thank you. Coming from a rural town in Georgia, where did you get all this style from? I grew up with it. I'm the baby of six boys, and my father was an impeccable dresser. You know, but for them, the social outings primarily were church. That's when you got dressed. But I watched them, and I watched my older brothers, and I mimic, you know, when you're the youngest, you're trying to mimic everything that they do. And and I admire my father so much, not just for his sense of style or fashion, but his work ethic, everything about him, you know. And so you're just trying to emulate. And as fate would have it, I would ultimately work in an environment where style and fashion play such a great role in the story that we document at the Negro Leagues. And so it has become part of my persona. I love it. I love putting stuff together, mixing and matching, trying to see if you can make it work. And and so I really do enjoy it. You could really have a class to teach some of the young folks about presentation. I think that that's what's missing now. The whole idea of being thoughtful in your presentation and how the world is going to see you is missing. Oh, no question. And, And the story that we document was an era of fashion. It was an era of dress. So no matter where you went, you went out in society, you wanted to look your very best. And this was increasingly true for, for black folks. You know, part of it, I think, because we had been portrayed in such a way so that when we went out in society, we were going to give you a different viewpoint. We were going to put it together. And so, you know, your great grandmother, your grandmother wouldn't even go get the groceries if she didn't have her fineries on. So she's going to put her hat, her dress, her pearls, her gloves just to go to the store because it meant something when you went out in public. We become such a casual society now that that appearance thing doesn't seem to mean quite as much. And I, and I understand people have their own individuality and that kind of thing and freedom of expression and that kind of thing. But for those of us who are of, of any age uh, who can kind of relate to what it used to be back in yesteryear, it means something. And that's one of the reasons when we created the Dress to the Nines event that we do every year now in conjunction with the Kansas City Royals, that is so cool to see little kids dressed up to go to the ball game because that's what used to happen when the monarchs were in town. You went dressed. The late great Buck O'Neill Shea would say a young kid could come from the cotton fields of Georgia or the textile mills of South Carolina coming to Kansas City to join the Kansas City monarchs. And the first thing they did 
was they took him to see the tailor there at historic 18th and Vine. And the tailor was going to make him two suits and he was going to pay him when he got his first check. He just signed for it. <laughs> got his two suits custom because it meant that to be a monarch. You had to look good. As you were talking about the Negro Leagues and the reason that it was invented is because black men were kept out of baseball. Do you think that desegregation was a bad thing for black sports and for black people? The old adage, be careful what you ask for, you might get it, kind of reigns true with the Negro Leagues. Because I'm not sure that the African-American community realized what we were losing when we lost the Negro Leagues. Now, this was a sign of progress. But as I tell people all the time, there is always a cost for progress. And in this case, black businesses paid a dear cost for what was deemed progress. The Negro Leagues were generating such incredible fan base that supported so many of those segregated, mandated owned black businesses. So essentially, these businesses were emerging to meet need. The street hotel, the black owned hotel there at Historic 18th and Vine at that era. Well, it wasn't uncommon for these athletes to go into a town, fill up the ballpark, yet not be able to get a meal from the same fans who had just cheered them or not have a place to stay. So businesses like the street hotel emerged to meet those needs. Negro Leagues Baseball brought them a built-in clientele that led those businesses to their economic heights. So with integration, and in large part, integration was spawned by Jackie Robinson's breaking of baseball's color barrier, which ultimately led to the demise of the Negro Leagues. And when we lost the Negro Leagues, we lost that infrastructure that supported so many black businesses. Businesses. And in some respect, and this is so hard, it's so self-reflective. We have to look in the mirror at ourselves because we turn our backs on our own businesses. We now had an opportunity to shop anywhere that we wanted to. And there was a time when a woman could go into a store, a mainstream store, and if she touched a hat, she had to buy it. Wow. Yeah, she had to buy it. That hat is now stained forever. And, and so there's this kind of sociological, psychological mindset that you feel like you're getting something better now that you have an opportunity to go to a place where they didn't originally want you to come. We can't run away from the fact that we kind of turned our backs as well. So now all of a sudden, those smaller black businesses could no longer compete. Yeah. And so they perished. And so areas like historic 18th and Vine or Auburn Avenue in Atlanta, Wiley Avenue in Pittsburgh on the hill in Pittsburgh or throughout this country, wherever you had successful black baseball, you had thriving black economies. Black baseball is gone. Then all of a sudden you lose that thriving base that drove those economies. And so it's bittersweet from that standpoint. Now, integration was good for the soul of our country. It moved us in ways socially that we never dreamed of. But while we were asking for integration, I think what we really wanted was equality. And we're still struggling right now as a society and as a nation to create an equal platform for all of its citizens. So I think that is still the ultimate quest as we look at our country and the makeup of our country today. In 1993, you became a volunteer <laughs> yes. at the Negro Leagues Baseball <laughs> Museum. But you're in the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame for basketball. <laughs> I wish I could say it was for my prolific basketball career, <laughs> but it really wasn't that prolific. But the folks at the Missouri Sports <laughs> Hall of Fame said you deserve to be in there. I think it really was for the more for the work that we've been doing to keep the legacy of the Negro Leagues alive. And when they called me and said, we want to induct you into the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame. I said, you want to duck me? <laughs> <laughs> 
okay. You know, I ain't, I, you know, I, I'm in there. I ain't gonna ask how I got in there. And then in the end, people don't care how you got in there. They just want you to be in there. And so I'm in there. And, and thanks to my friends at the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame for, for making me this icon, at least in my own mind. <laughs> but I, I wish I could say it was for my prolific basketball career. Although I did play small college basketball and basketball was certainly one of my loves. I've been a baseball fan since I can remember. I was a baseball fan from the time that I think I was five years old and, and say I taught myself how to read a box score out of the old Atlanta Journal-Constitution newspaper and fell in love with the game. But again, you, you're mimicking and emulating what your other, my, my father was a big baseball fan. My brothers played, they used to be on Sundays, play what they call hardball, you know, where they would all, the communities would come together and they would literally be sitting on the hoods of their cars and they were playing this game. It was almost like it was a professional baseball game when the other local towns would come in and play and you know, they might be playing for a case of beer, you know, but <laughs> you were, you would have thought that it was the World Series and that you were going to get this trophy and the trophy really would have been a case of beer. But, you know, everybody's going at it as hard as they possibly can. And so I've always been immersed in baseball. I never even dreamed that I would ultimately be making my living in baseball. Yeah, I chased that basketball to Kansas City. That's how I got to Kansas City, playing small college basketball over at Park College, which is now Park University, and, and love basketball. Still do, but baseball has always been at the forefront for me, and, and I've, you know, I never dreamed I'd be making my living in baseball. I try to impart to young people the importance of relationship building. Mm-hmm. We're in a society now where Drake is telling kids no new friends. And I think that that's a wrong message. Your relationship and friendship with Buck O'Neill is what really brought you here, right? And, and that's the college experience in general. You meet friends who will be friends for the rest of your life. You are introduced to things that maybe were outside of your world, new cultures, new experiences. So no, no, you should always want to meet as many people. Now, you you know, we're all kind of careful who we call friends, but the acquaintances that we meet along the journey is as important as the journey itself. Because these are the things that set us up for our life experiences. Had I not come to Kansas City, had I gone to Howard University like I was initially intending to do, as fate would have it, I end up coming to Kansas City. I start volunteering for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I meet Buck O'Neill. Buck O'Neill becomes, outside of my father and my brothers, the most influential person in my life. Yeah. And he was 50 years my senior. And, And so, yeah, we strike up this kindred relationship that has had this impact in such a great way in terms of what happens as my career starts to manifest itself. My outlook on life in general was changed by Buck O'Neill and his spirit. And, And so, no, I don't want to devalue what it means to have these alliances and these friendships as we move through our lives. Um, so yeah, no, I would be inclined not to agree with, with Drake's mindset there to you know i'm sure he's got his reasoning for it i couldn't imagine how my life would have been so different had i not met buck or had i not met monty irvin or some of the other great legendary negro league stars who became friends of mine you know over the time over time and so and my life has changed and i think i've grown as a person having had that experience. Back in August of last year, there was some vandalism at the Buck O'Neill Research and Education Center in the former Paseo YMCA. How are things now with that? Things are good. Things are good. I I can tell you, though, it was one of the, perhaps the most darkest day for me 
both personally and professionally. I think the only other thing, Shay, that I would put into that category would be when I had to tell my friend Buck O'Neill that he didn't get enough votes to get into the National Baseball Hall of Fame and perhaps his death. Those three things, uh, I would rank right one, two, three. But the fact, the realization, once we realized that someone had deliberately and very maliciously gone in to try to destroy all of this work that we had done to rehabilitate the old Purcell YMCA to convert it into the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center. And for those who may not be familiar with that project, the Purcell YMCA is the birthplace of the Negro Leagues. That's where the leagues were formed here in Kansas City in 1920. And so through a wonderful friend of the museum, the late great Landon Rowland, who bought that building, donated it to the museum so that the museum could redevelop it as a site to expand our operations. And so we had been working diligently to save that old historic landmark, had done all the exterior work, gutted the interior, had started the interior transformation. And then late summer last year, someone went into the building very maliciously, mean-spiritedly, cut a mainline water pipe and flooded the building, causing some a surmountable amount of damage to the building. And it just, it killed your spirit. It, it really did. And as I tell the story all the time, when I initially got there, Dr. Raymond Doswell, who works for the museum, my assistant, Joan Finley, I'm at Nisi's eating breakfast. I snuck out, played an early morning round of golf. We had Nisi's. I'm enjoying my my grits. You know, I'm a Southern boy, so I had some grits. And, and they smoking. are good yeah, at yeah. Nisi's. Yes, they are. <laughs> and, and, and so I'm there, I'm eating my grits, and I get a call from, from Ray. And Ray says, Bob, you better get down here quick. The Buck O'Neill Center is flooding. Well, at that point, you know, I'm thinking maybe a water pipe had burst or something like that. And I'm like, you know, even then I can't envision in my mind that it's going to be that bad. You know, it's a water place. And so I stop what I'm doing and get down to the building. I get there. It's the aftermath. The fire department has come and they had shut off the water valve, turned the water valve off. And they literally have these giant squeegees and they're squeezing, squeegeeing all this water out of the building. You know, at that point. I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, this ain't just some water, you know, pipe that's burst. Well, we finally get up to the second floor where they discovered where this water was coming from and realized that the pipe had been cut. Yeah, and, and the pipe had been very stealthily cut. This was not your run-of-the-mill copper thief. No, no, this wasn't someone who just, just broke into the building and I'm going to rummage through the building and see what damage I can do. Uh-uh. This was for someone who had very carefully thought out and executed the game plan for a very malicious crime because they were really trying to destroy the building. Why? I have no idea. Because this was a, a building that the community had, was so vested in. They were so excited to see the work that we had done there to clean that old eyesore up. Matter of fact, it was the only eyesore on the Paseo. And so we had cleaned it up. The community was excited about it. The community, when we started the demolition effort, they were coming in and they were literally hauling debris out of the building, doing anything that they could help, including the barbecue baron, Mr. Ollie Gates, who has been our pseudo project manager on this in a volunteer capacity. One of the most successful businessmen in Kansas City is in his boots and overalls, and he's in there literally moving debris because he wanted this building in memory of his friend, and he and Buck were longtime friends. And, and so to walk into that building and realize that someone had done this, it just kind of knocked the wind out of your sails. And as I tell people all the time, at that point, I'm ready to wave the white flag. You know, I'm ready to 
People are mean-spirited. They will do despicable things. You're ready to give up on people. And, and you know you can't give up on people. You know this. And what happens? People started to step up to the plate. Yeah, people started from all over the country, started this outpouring of love and affection, people sending in money unsolicitedly to help this project. And what does it do? It renews your spirit. The late great Buck O'Neill, for all of his infinite wisdom, he would oftentimes say that people will do bad things and good people will fix them. And the good people started to step up. Little league teams were having fundraisers and, and they would raise whatever it was, $100, $200, and they would send it to us. And so... And this was happening universally from around the country with people we didn't even know. And hopefully by February 13th of next year, which will mark the 100th anniversary to the date that the Negro Leagues were formed in that building, that we will have some kind of ceremonial celebration for the opening of the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center in the very building that the Negro Leagues were formed. That's a story of triumph, definitely. Anytime someone comes to visit me, I take them immediately to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I'm through there all the time. <laughs> and I know the people sick of me. But No, no, never. I feel like this is a jewel in our city. Yes. This is something for all of us to be proud of. The history, the resolve, the desire to win even in the face of adversity. When I walk through the museum, I see more white people yeah. than I see yeah. black people. Yeah. Why do you think that is? And, and, and quite frankly, Shay, it used to be like even more greater disproportionate. And I'm not sure if the African-American community initially thought that this was going to be so painful for them to have to relive these experiences. But there's nothing so Powerful about the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. For those who think they're going to be introduced to a sad, somber story, man, you got the wrong place. No, no, no. This goes back to what you said. This is a celebration, and we treat it as such, but it is the celebration of the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. These athletes never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. You won't let me play with you? I create my own. Yeah, I create my own. And that is the American way. And so I think for my white patrons, this embodies everything that they love. I tell people all the time, what's not to love about the Negro Leagues? It is America's story. It's America at her worst, but it's also America at her triumphant best. And it combines baseball and history. And I think that is something that lights their fire. They want to experience this. And for virtually every person who comes to see us, this is a brand new history. And the prevailing thought process is, I didn't know, because you had no way to know. This is not in the pages of American history books. So countless generations of us went through our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history. Not only changed our game, but ultimately changed our country for the better. And that's the story that we celebrate. Yeah, it's against the backdrop of American segregation, horrible chapter in this country's history. But that's not the story. The story is what they did to overcome the adversity. And it's such a transcending story. It transcends race. It transcends age. And it transcends gender. I think this story today may be more meaningful now than ever before because of some of the things that we're seeing happening in our society. And young people are very savvy. And they look at history from the lens of that was then, this is now. All of a sudden, now starts to look a whole lot like then. Uh -huh. And so you need these things that you can draw strength from. You need to identify with those who have overcome. 
and here's how they went about doing it. And and I think that's the the fundamental message that the Negro Leagues Museum presents to people. And I think that's why people walk out of there with a renewed spirit. It is life altering for a lot of people who come in there. You know, it is emotional, uh, but it's uplifting. You walk out of some of those museums and you just kind of you're mad, you know, and and, and you're angry but not the Negro Leagues Museum. You really come out cheering the spirit of these incredible entrepreneurs, these incredible athletes. I've never been into a museum as many times as I've been into yours. (laughs) And I think part of what I love about the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is that it's not stale. You're constantly putting new exhibits. When you put the Peanut Johnson to uh, exhibit up to showcase the women that were in the Negro League, you got the Hot Dog Festival, which is my favorite outdoor (laughs) festival in Kansas City. It is. I love it. And I see this as a way to engage Mm -hmm. other segments of society who may not think that they're welcome in a place like that, like women or young people or foodies or whatever. What are some of the other things that you're going to do to continue to fly the NLBM flag, if you will? Well, and for me, that's what keeps me up at night, you know, And, and it's not a bad thing. Because I'm constantly in my mind trying to figure out what's next. What can we do? How do we make this history relevant? How do we connect? How do we broaden that base of support? And so we, we're we bringing back one of our, I think, mean, one of our coolest projects ever, which is an art exhibition inspired by the Negro Leagues called Shades of Greatness. And we created Shades of Greatness in Kansas City in 2003. And it's been touring the country ever since then. But now we're bringing it back for an encore viewing at the museum. And what does it do? Those who are fans of visual art. This was their introduction to the Negro League. So we put together a team of professional artists, 28 of them, to come together to create the first ever collaborative professional art exhibition inspired by the Negro Leagues. And so all of a sudden now this broadens the base. And yet I had the artist, you know, typically you go and you view art and then you try to figure out what the artist, what motivated the artist, what inspired the artist, but not here. We actually had the artist tell you what inspired them. So now you're learning about the history through of the Negro Leagues through their lens. And of course, these incredible 35 pieces that are just absolutely amazing. We'll add some additional pieces just to kind of round out the exhibition, but this thing has been touring since 2003. I don't know if people understand how difficult it is to commission a group of 28 artists when you ain't have any money. And so, you know, there, I, it's one of the things that I'm most proud of is we got 28 artists to come together, create these works of art for the Little Old Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And this collection will only grow over time in terms of its value and its significance. Uh, we're opening up the new Barrier Breaker exhibit in June and Barrier Breakers will celebrate the players who broke their major league teams' respective color barriers. See, everybody knows the story of Jackie Robinson, and rightfully so, the courage that he demonstrated being the first. But it took 12 years before every major league team had at least one black baseball player. Yeah, Boston would become the last team to integrate in 1959. It didn't get any easier for Pumpsy Green in 1959 than it did for Jackie in 1947. And, and so their stories deserve to be told as well. And if we don't tell it, who will? And so you touched upon it. You know, we created the Beauty of the Game exhibit because we felt like the role that women played in the Negro League should be more than just a footnote in history. You needed to know about Tony Stone and Connie Morgan and Mamie Peanut Johnson. And I'm so excited. I'm going to New York to see the new Tony Stone off-Broadway play on the life of Tony Stone. April Mathis is playing Tony Stone. She's a 
pro's pro in theater and film and TV and the whole nine yards. So I'm really looking forward to seeing the adaptation of Tony Stone's illustrious life, who is the first of those three women to play in the Negro Leagues. But you needed to know about Effa Manley, the first woman to own and operate a professional baseball team. And the fact that the Negro Leagues were creating these opportunities for women well ahead of American society. So why is this story so meaningful and so compelling? A league born out of segregation becomes the driving force for social change in this country. A league born out of exclusion becomes one of the most inclusive entities in American society. Say they didn't care what color you were and they didn't care what gender you were. Can you play? Do you have something to offer? And, and, and for me, I think the Negro Leagues embodies everything that America is supposed to be. We're not there yet. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's why people identify with it once they are introduced to it. I think people understand better why I love you so much. <laughs> I can sit and just listen to you talk about anything. <laughs> we could just open up the phone book and you could just start talking to me about anything. And I am totally enraptured in what you're saying. Oh, I appreciate that. We know there's been some problems at the American Jazz Museum. Mm -hmm. I personally think you need to take over. And <laughs> it's all about leadership. You've got to have a strong and a transformational figure. And I see you as that. Yeah. I don't want to water you down and move you over there, but I just want to go on record as to say I think you would be the person who could really help turn that around. Maybe you not doing the day to day, but your leadership and then you have like a vice president or something who can do the groundwork. Mm -hmm. Am I stepping too far out there? Well, you know, I, I appreciate the sentiment and others are, throughout the community have expressed that same sentiment. You know, my my passion is for the story that we take care of. We have one of the most unique set of cultural institutions. And I think the fact that we have this cultural campus at 18th Divine, not just Negro Leagues Museum and American Jazz Museum, but the Black Archives of Mid-America, Alvin Ailey Dance Troupe. You've got the old Mutual Musicians Foundation, now the impending Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center. You've got an Urban Youth Baseball Academy. All of these things within a two-block radius of one another. And it's something, Shay, that no other city in this country has. They would all be clamoring to have it at one central location. And for me, it's almost like a college experience. And, and it's all built around cultural. Uh, and, and I think cultural tourism is, is at its highest now. And I don't know if we've looked at that in the manner in which we should. And the uniqueness that we have there at 18th and Vine. People keep finding reasons to throw stones at 18th and Vine. 18th and Vine is the most authentic historical experience in Kansas City. Everything that Kansas City hangs its hat on, barbecue and jazz, all originated at 18th and Vine. So why wouldn't we want to tout that? You know, that's the thing that we, we build our city on. I think there's a lot of work left to do. You know, we're very proud of what we've been able to do over the last 29 years of our operations as a museum. And we think that we've just scratched the surface with the 100th anniversary celebration coming next year. And this thing, I think it'd be so, so big. I think it'd be so profound and so paramount for our city as well as our nation. And we get a chance to try and tout that. And, and so, you know, it's a uh, dubious task to lead a national 100th anniversary celebration and you know you got one chance to get it right yeah i ain't gonna be here for the next 100 so <laughs> 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 and 
episode, we got to get this right. And because you basically it's a once in a century opportunity and you want to maximize it as best we can. But it's going to be so great for our city and it's going to be so meaningful and impactful for the continued development of historic 18th and Vine. We were talking to Spike Lee last week on the morning show about his love of baseball, jazz, all of that. And he admitted that he's never been to Kansas City. And so, you know, we were talking to him about possibly getting him here. He was really excited about wanting to get to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And the reason why we brought it up is because 18th and Vine is Kansas City's Harlem. Mm-hmm. If you would. And him oh, being a, a man from New York City, absolutely. you know, he can understand yep. the correlation. How do we continue to encourage the city to support 18th and Vine the way that it was done so many years ago when mm-hmm. that was the place mm-hmm. for everyone to gather? Well, you know, I tell people all the time as we look so forward in our thinking today, for us, we're looking at returning 18th and Vine back to what it used to be. Yeah. When it was alive and thriving and jumping, it was literally a cultural crossroads where jazz and baseball intersected and anybody who was anybody made their way to 18th and Vine. We want to bring that spirit back. We want again, you know, people are living there in a historic 18th and Vine jazz district. And we hope that the continued growth through commercial development will continue to take place and that people will not only find it a destination, but they will want to continue to live at historic 18th and Vine. Live, work, and play at 18th and Vine. And and that, to me, encompasses the best of all the worlds that we could hope for. I just think that 18th and Vine is poised for renaissance. Now, again, you know, I'm the consummate optimist, but I just see it coming. I I really do. And and I just think that everybody involved with the planning process for this next phase of growth, I think we all know that we got to get it right. And we want to get it right. And we want these businesses to be daring enough to come and set up shop and they be successful. Anytime that there's a failed business at 18th and Vine, we all feel it. There's never a day that I'm not happy to see you. <laughs> Even if I'm in a bad mood, just to see you walk in the door. I'm like, oh my God, Mr. Kendrick is here. You know, I call you blue cheese too. Because <laughs> he be dressing. <laughs> So how can people support the museum? Yes. If they're listening today and they are not in Kansas City yes. and don't have the opportunity to walk through the doors and they want to support you financially, how can they do it? Well, they can go online to www.nlbm.com. You can make a charitable donation to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. If you're so inclined, and we hope you are, you can become a member of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Shay, we have members from around the globe, many of them who will never step foot inside of our museum, but they understand how important and why it is so important that the legacy of the Negro Leagues plays on long after there are no more Negro League players left to attest to how great and meaningful this story is. And to me, membership is one of the ways in which you become a stakeholder in an organization. When you say every year, I'm going to write you a little check, it doesn't matter what the amount is. Memberships start as low as $25. They go up as high as someone wants to make a contribution to support it. But the fact that you say, I'm going to make that pledge and I'm going to do this on an annual basis because I believe in your mission. I believe in what you represent. I don't know if there's any more meaningful expression. So again, please visit nlbm.com where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. If you're so inclined, you can follow me on Twitter at NLBM Prez, P-R-E-Z, where I try to keep people 
constantly in the know on what's happening in and around the museum and the same handle on Instagram. I'm on both of these social media modes and I don't know a doggone thing yes, about do. what I'm doing. <laughs> you do it a great job. <laughs> I want to encourage everyone who has listened to this podcast, if you live in Kansas City, to go as a family on 18th and Vine and visit the museum. I am also a member of the museum. I found it important for me to support not only with just my presence, but with my dollars. And it allows me to get into the museum for free. And so when I bring the people who come visit me, I get in free. They got to pay. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what I'm saying? It's important. It's important. And I really think it's important for the African-American community to understand that culture and heritage are not free and that these cultural institutions are our voice uh, and we need them because until these stories become ingrained in the pages of American history books, we need these stories. We need these institutions to make sure that people understand and that we have a place where we can go and identify with ourselves in all wakes, in all lights. You got to deliver my wake when I die because you know I'm going to die before you. The Lord ain't going to let you leave here. We need you, child. You're going to be old as Methuselah still, coming up there dressing and, and, and teaching this information. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us. You're just a gem in Kansas City. I appreciate City. that. Thank you. We appreciate everything that you do. Uh, the fact that you've been a continual voice because a museum of ours We're not going to be successful if we don't have voices. We have to be able to assemble voices to help take this message out in a broader context, in a broader capacity. And and you and all of our friends at the Carter Broadcast Group have done that continually for us for years. And so we wouldn't be where we are. You know, I'm going to New York to accept the not-for-profit of the year award from the American Business Awards Association. And that is an honor that, you know, to receive the gold award as the top, a small not-for-profit business in the country. That doesn't happen without people like yourself and without so many supporters and friends and obviously a tremendous staff who believe in what the vision is and they've sacrificed in order to kind of help perpetuate what we try what we're trying to get done. And so, you know, it's just it, it I probably get too much attention for what we get done because there's so many who make it happen. And and you know, I'm very proud of the fact that we've been able to assemble so many people who believe in what we're doing and and hopefully uh if i'm the guy that's kind of signal out i can hopefully continue to inspire people to want to be on our team thank you <laughs> you'll never know all the people places things that you see